Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hi, friends. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant, where we are taking a long trek through Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. It's actually not as long as the previous trek because we've innovated. We're changing constantly. What we figured out is that a little bit of a longer reading section makes for more content per episode, whereas we read War and Peace about five paragraphs at a time. <laughs> it took us two and a half years. We're, we're aiming to get Les Miserables done a little sooner. Yeah. And I think it's working. What do you guys think? Yeah, here we are in a new year, and I think we'll actually finish it this year if all goes well. No emergencies come up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so I'm so far really enjoying it because in this is a great section, actually, I think for this, the romanticism that's present in this novel, we've talked about many times already. But this section, as he describes Paris, I just thought, dude, dude, like you are laying, <laughs> you are laying it on so thick, Victor. And you clearly think that Paris is the greatest place on earth. And the flowery, beautiful descriptions are really fun to read. So I, for one, am, am digging it. Megan, what do you think? Well, I'm digging it, too. I, I actually was off in my mind thinking about the difference between enlightenment ideas and romanticism. I think that we have cause to talk about the difference between those two philosophies again in this passage, because he is, as always, considering the problem that he sees in his society and offering some kind of solution that does seem to harken back to enlightenment principles. Okay, characterize those two point of, points of view for us. Well, romanticism, when I think about romanticism, I think of, like you were saying, flowery writing style, an emphasis on man's emotion being the most important quality that he possesses, and like a sense of drama in the text, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. When I think about enlightenment, I consider man's rational faculty to be his most important quality. And, you know, the age of reason or the age of science even man's reason coming to bear on the world around him as he is his ultimate hope for for success and survival. So any he problem, he himself, any problem that a man faces, he can, through his own abilities, come to some kind of solution. So mm. um, this this hopefulness based in man, I think that those two philosophies are side by side in this passage and that Hugo is bringing them into conversation. The problem itself that he sees with the society is emotional to him. And yet the solution he hopes is, is some kind of mankind pulling together to, to fix the problem of the society. I don't know. Did you guys hear that too? I'm intrigued at least. Emily, what do you think? Yeah, I heard that. I was thinking more about the romantic ideals in this section than the enlightenment ones. But I see what you're saying that the children are innocent. He, he says that they are, they're born with this pearl in their hearts, which is their innocence. God, God wants the children of man to be born into the world pure or something like that. He says, and from there 
there's some kind of progress that we have to make. We're looking for the light. And he, and he character, characterizes light several times mm-hmm. in this passage. And I think that that word choice is really important. When he said light, it's what made me think of enlightenment. Enlightenment, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's chapter 10 of book one of Marius. He says, the gamin is a beauty and at the same time, a disease of the nation, a disease that must be cured. How? By light. Light makes whole. Light enlightens. Get it? All the generous sun rays of society spring from science, letters, the arts, and education. Make men, make men, give them light so they can give you warmth. I mean, that's enlightenment ideas in a nutshell. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right on down to universal education. Right. Exactly. I found it a little confusing, though, um, what he was trying to say about the Gamon's role in that enlightenment let's define this word for people for starters so the gamin who so, wants to take a crack well i just my favorite thing about the gamin is the section where he says that the word had not entered the language until this short story was published let's see what chapter is that it's uh, chapter seven of the first part that we read for today he says the word was printed for the first time and passed from popular language into literature in 1834, it was in a little work called Glaudju that the word first appeared and it caused an uproar. So that was a short story written by a Victor Hugo. <laughs> <laughs> he sweeps himself. I love that. There's, at, I feel like Hugo and Tolstoy are friends. Yes, I was just going to say there's more. they have more in common every page I read. It's so funny. <laughs> It was in this really brilliant thing that I once read. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, me. I wrote that. <laughs> so it's a word. It's a word that characterizes a street urchin, right? That's the that's the definition of the word. It's it's a street urchin, and and he goes to great pains to describe them. And I want to talk about his description because I think probably it has something to do with what Megan was saying just now. This tension between the intellectual and the the rational, and the pure noble spirit of mankind. What is your, here's how I want to start this. What is your impression, you two, as he describes the street urchin? Did he, did he contradict things that you natively expect about the scenario? When you think homeless children running around the streets of Paris in this era, do you buy his characterization of their circumstances? I think we sit in a really difficult position for that question because at least for me, my ideas of what that looks like are greatly influenced by the legacy of Les Mis. Mm. So when I think of Paris street children, I think of adaptations of Gavroche, who is like this noble savage kind of character who is the wit of the play at least. And so it is heavily romanticized in my mind. Hmm. Megan, what about you? Well, yeah, I don't think that this contradicts any of my presuppositions, maybe because of the same thing Emily is saying. But I do think there is an inherent contradiction to the character, to the idea of this noble savage. On the one hand, Hugo hastens to say that the character is noble, that there, I think someone said it already in our podcast today, there is like a pearl of innocence that nothing can touch in a child's soul and for the gamma that remains, regardless of circumstance. But at the same time, he also goes into great detail about all of the vicissitudes of life that little kids interact with and how they are vicissitudes, though. Yeah. 
they're not coming from the kid, in other words. Well, right. Maybe that's the, the clarification. They're not cruel by nature, but they have experienced the cruelty of the world and they're hardened to it, callous in some ways. Yeah, that's a good description. Yeah. Uh, so it, maybe this question was, was better posed to myself because apparently you guys were like, no, we got it. I thought that was great. <laughs> totally makes sense. For me, the image of a street urchin running around a major city is Oliver Twist. Mm, mm-hmm. And it is unremittingly dark and brutal and grimy. And and obviously that's Dickens' take on the same phenomenon. And they're different writers with different ideas. But I was surprised by a lot of this because I guess I guess just by it's my idealized. Instinct. Yeah, because it's so idealized. And that's that's maybe why I leaned into the romanticism comments mm-hmm. early in the episode. He's his idea that the the life of a street urchin is fundamentally free, hmm. that it's about liberty and that it's about enjoyment and that there's a happy go lucky, carefree, Huck Finn style Society attitude, yeah, a little society. So they're playing of, of marbles on the side of the road with some rocks. Yeah, and he also he also seems to be, and, and then I want to hear from you, Emily. But it's, he seems to be reporting this as fact and history, rather than writing a fiction. And I don't know if I buy it because because I because I think the romantic perspective on on mankind is a little on the flawed side. I actually think we are a lot more messed up than the little gamas that he describes. And he does what it's, he's not saying, well, I don't think he's entirely saying that this is something to be desired. I do think that he is saying that this is a phenomenon and it, it occurs everywhere. And I don't know, he doesn't go entirely towards the, this is something that can be fixed uh, saying that, but we are to pity them, right? There. Yeah. This isn't. This is a tragic situation at its heart. So it's not Huck Finn in that this is something that we aspire to, and only if we could all live like the Gamal, right? Right. Like, right. No, it definitely. You're right. He's, he does portray it with a lot of pathos. That actually leads me to a question, and this really is an honest question. He goes to to give you, as Ian was saying, a bit of history about the Gamal, and mentions that in the reign of Louis the Fifteenth, children tended to disappear. In Paris, mm-hmm. because he, the king, Louis XV, wanted to have galley slaves to make his navy stronger. So if mm-hmm. a boy was discovered in the streets and he was 15 years of age, the king would basically deport him and put him in the galley ships and kidnap him, even if he had a father. So those that was kind of an interesting little bit of history that that I think added to the sinister tone and offset the Huck Finn scene, which was also present. The right. kind of the duality of this. On the one hand, look how look how free, look how innocent and childlike. On the other hand, look how they're getting taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was a shocking detail. Yeah, there he says that they towards the end he says that they were able to escape the the grinding mill of society, although they're destined for it. Mm. But it's only because they're so little. They're so little. That Any they, hole will yeah, suffice to that save they fall them, yeah. through the gaps. Hmm. So I do think that it's significant to the overall themes of his story that it's the little ones who are kind of the beating heart of Paris. Yeah. I also like the it's I like the out of the mouths of babes idea. I mean one of the things that's the most attractive because let me be clear, when I say I don't buy it, I mean I'm not sure this is reporting history. This is idealized. Mm. 
that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy the heck out of reading it. I mean, it's it's entrancing. The idea of these little people running around the city and owning it in ways that even the people that own it can't own it is totally enthralling to me. And I love the fact that it's wit, right? They're uneducated. They don't necessarily know any of the philosophers that he mentions, right? He keeps going back to Voltaire, obviously, and he says, they don't know they're Voltaire. And that's his shorthand for they haven't received an education, but they're really, really perceptive. They know the name and the attitude Mm -hmm. and the character of every policeman in the city, for example. They know enough to hate cures, which I thought was a really funny comment. And they they know the truth. They, they're more in touch with a, a more sinister reality. Instead of Voltaire, I'm looking at the part you just referenced, mm-hmm. they know Papavoin, who I looked Don't know up. who that is. Well, I looked it up, and he, he was a child murderer. No kidding. So that seems significant, right? They, he, they, he talks about them being very well acquainted with the guillotine and with public executions right. and, you know, with the the seedy underbelly of Paris. And so they're hardened to. I found a little passage that I think sums that up. He calls them a thoughtful witness of our social realities and our human problems. The gamin thinks himself carefree, but he is not. He looks on ready to laugh, ready to for something else. So that idea of the noble savage coming back around again, he will be changed by whatever input there is from his outside surroundings. And while he's got this purity inside and this desire to laugh at things, there's also a readiness for the suffering that he's experienced and that he knows he will again. Yeah, that's right. And he, and he so he makes the jump from from there, from these little gamins. And I think we're getting the the description of them because Gavroche, who's also introduced later in our passage, is going to be an important character. And he is one. Mm-hmm. Right. But he also connects this idea to a sort of proving ground or training ground for the people of Paris, for the average Parisian of the era. And this line was really interesting to me. It is in the Faubourgs, 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 Faubourgs. <laughs> it is in the Faubourgs, particularly, we insist that the Parisian race is found. There is the pure blood. There are the true features. There this population works and suffers. And suffering and toil are the two faces of men. Mm. So in that way... The real Parisian is not some bourgeois onlooker. Like like we're going to meet in the next section. Right. Is not some bourgeois onlooker. It's actually the guy that grew up a gamin and has now now entered the the grist mill that Emily was talking about him being prepared for. Hmm. And there's a nobility to that and a clear-headedness that comes from having witnessed suffering and toil. And that, I think, is, is... pulls us back towards our original conversation about God being more than just, right? There's mm. there's a connection to man in the spiritual that is a step removed from enlightenment versus romanticism. And I think it's what makes Hugo palatable for me is that he's he's talking about those philosophical ideas, certainly. And he's he wants to talk about the revolution. He wants to understand whether it was successful. He wants to defend it maybe as successful but also he wants to talk about the relationship of man to God and the suffering and the toil aspect of, of society allows him to make that leap. Yeah, I think you're right. I can't forget that moment where he's discussing Fontaine in her darkest hour, not being alone in the presence of God being with her, even in her, her, you know, squalid little room. I had that same feeling as he was describing the gamin as a little fellow made of clay, made of ordinary mud. But when a god, he says, all that 
I'm going to read the little section. I can't do it justice. What clay is he made of? Ordinary mud, a handful of common soil, a breath, and behold, Adam. A god merely has to pass by. A god has always passed by the gamma. That's like you're saying, it's truth's intention. There's a Christian perspective on the nobility of man rather than a philosophical one that I think is even more thought-provoking to me. This idea of that being allowed in a divine perspective. That the Imago Dei is actually clearer, the more grubby the human the humanity, the yeah. human form is. Mm-hmm. I actually read that section a little more darkly, that a God has always passed by. I didn't take that as presence. I took that as absence, right? Like, God passes like by. Like ignored. A little bit. Hmm. But I also like that reading. Oh, I, yeah, like, I like yours too, though. I think too, they though. fit. Count on Count on Emily to be like, well, <laughs> brutal. God, I think it's a little dark in this part. So, Emily, what do you make of the transition from talking about the Gamat to talking about Paris itself? And do you think he goes overboard at all a little? Well, I was going to bring that part up. But first, I, I have one more thought about the Gamon's relationship to God. And while you guys were talking, I was just thinking about how the grand bourgeois in the next section where Hugo tells us that he really had no belief in God. Um, Mm -hmm. He was totally. Yeah. And it comes at the end of the description as sort of a period. Yeah. Right. It's very declarative, but, and the same is kind of true of the Gama. He is easily led to mock everything important, including the church. But we're also told that if he was invited to be an altar boy, he would immediately. And do it well. Mm -hmm. And do it well. So maybe he is he sees through the the structures, the facade of the church to something real. I don't know, but there it's a similar attitude, but with a difference hmm. between the two, which I thought was interesting. I just have a quick question. I just thought that maybe maybe we should explain really quickly why the tone of Hugo seems to assume that we agree with him that people who work in the clergy should be scorned. And the Gemma is really mm. wise to know that already. I don't think that mm-hmm. is intuitive unless you understand the historical period a little bit. Do either of you feel Good point. ready to explain that? I can. If, I mean, I can do like. it. I can do it in a very bird's eye view kind of way. Yeah, let's do the that. Church, I think that might be helpful. The church was filthy rich while the Gamas ran around Paris. Right. That's that's the main. That's the simplest way to put it. Is that this is in an era where the church was bloated and out of touch with its real work as an institution. Now, the bishop that we meet in the early stages of the story that saves Valjean's soul is an exception to the rule, but the rule of the era was that, certainly. And even people's shock at the way that he comports himself kind of ties in to the idea of what the the clergy was in this day and age. Like you're saying, bloated, kind of selfish, rather than pouring out its goodness to serve the people around, they actually just sort of used it as a social climbing situation. Right. Yeah, exactly. Swallowed in bureaucracy and... And um, greed. Right. So rather than a, a religious statement of, you know, turning their backs on God, this tone that Hugo has towards clergymen is is political in nature and specific to to his historical moment. Yep. That's well put. Yep. To go back to Ian's original question, all of the things that we're talking about, according to Hugo, are only possible in Paris. Mm. Uh, on page 577, he says, all the crimes of man begin with the vagrancy of childhood. 
And he continues on the next page. We must make an exception of Paris, however, to a considerable degree, and notwithstanding the scenes we have just recalled, the exception is just. While in every other city, the truant boy is the lost man. And I'm thinking about Ian's comparison to Oliver Twist. Is that true? I think maybe every city thinks about this about themselves. Mm -hmm. In every other city, the truant boy is the lost man, while almost everywhere the boy on his own is in some way dedicated and abandoned to a sort of fatal immersion in public vices, which eat out of him all honesty. And conscience itself, the gamin of Paris, we must insist, unpolished and spotted as he is on the surface, is almost intact within. A marvelous thing to note, and one that shines forth in the glorious probity of our popular revolutions. A certain incorruptibility results from the mental tone that is to the air of Paris what salt is to the water of the ocean. To breathe the air of Paris preserves the soul. (laughs) It's beautiful, isn't it? It's so pretty. It's beautiful. It really is. So he doesn't stop there, though. And and I'm going to overstate, as is my habit, gentle listeners, you know this about me, but he then makes... A pretty nearly comprehensive list of everything good about classical antiquity and says Paris has it, but better. <laughs> and I mean, he does it for pages and pages and pages. And and many of I mean, I am a classically educated man and many of the references I didn't even know. I mean, he's going he's going to lengths to make sure that we understand that Paris in its essence and at its heart has to recommend it. Every philosophical tradition and every cultural achievement of the West. Do you think that's an overstatement? And that's an honest question. Do you think it's an overstatement for the time that he's writing in? Kind of no. (laughs) If I'm being honest, Paris is geographically situated, ideally kind of at the heart of, of at least Western Europe, the parts that we associate with, the heritage of, of Western culture as it was mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think that he has a point. Megan. <laughs> I don't know. I, I can see that and I'm thoughtful, but at the same time I'm with Ian on my, <laughs> I'm thoughtful. I'm, thoughtful. I, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong, but I'm with Ian on my first reading. I thought, well, for goodness sake, I mean, there are so many giant cities in the world and they all have little homeless children in them. And what makes you think that you're better? Is it just because you're French? I mean, it felt a little bit like Tolstoy talking about the Russians. (laughs) Tolstoy was like, there are a lot of musics in the world, but the Russian music is the best. It's the best music. (laughs) We had the best music. (laughs) That's really funny. Yeah, I don't know where to stand on it either. I mean, like Emily said, Paris was the greatest city on earth for a long time. Because it was the crossroads of Europe and because that's where a lot of that was the seat of Western culture for a long time. And and maybe. But here's I think where my doubt is wrapped up is in his vision of the French Revolution. Which he is in support of. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right. He he thinks the revolution was a glorious step forward for humanity or at least a necessary evil. I don't know if he would call it glorious. I think he acknowledged that it was that it was flawed, flawed and heartbreaking and too far. But he believed that the issues it was addressing needed to be addressed and that it was a step forward in the end. We're going to get a furtherance of that perspective when we meet this old grandpa bourgeoisie guy who hates every member of every member of society who who believes in the revolution, who believes in republicanism. He's going to despise them. Yeah, I guess I I thought it was a little 
it was a little confusing to me that he describes Marius's grandfather, the 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 grand bourgeois. It's clearly a caricature. Mm-hmm. He is being described in all of his ridiculousness and gently mocked by his by the author. But the list of things he believes about French people and the French, I mean, I can imagine the grand bourgeois describing Paris in almost exactly the same way Victor Hugo just spent 20 pages doing. The, the, the sense of self that the grand bourgeois carries himself with is just as just as solidly in favor of his of himself well, and his Frenchness as Hugo is. And so it, it just seemed like I wonder if we're looking at a, a tiny blind spot. Well, I think he's supposed to no, I think he, the bourgeois is supposed to be an artifact, not necessarily a villain. I mean, he is a villain, but he represents the history he is part of the history of paris Mm. hugo says kind of like that nun we talked about that one time he embodies the 18th century and now Mm. this is a novel about the 19th century and so he's out of place in it yeah but i remember him saying he he does represent part of this grand narrative that hugo's laying out in this section so would that mean that he's a part of the previous problem that hugo believes they've addressed already and all of his you know, warts and, and wrinkles stand out extra because we've moved on past that? I think so. Yes. He's part of the problem, but then also part of the the heritage that makes Paris so cosmopolitan and the nece- also necessary evil, maybe. I don't know. That kind of sort of relates to a problem that I wanted to address that I don't understand and need help with thinking about which is the role of the light to go back to the enlightenment where victor hugo tells us that the gamin need light Mm -hmm. and why he goes on and on about why can't the light permeate into the the dark reaches of paris they deserve they're they're running around barefoot they deserve to know things they deserve our pity he talks about light as science and letters and art but then he also says on 588 that deeds of daring dazzle history and form one of man's guiding lights and those deeds of daring originate in these children so how is it that these children both need and produce light at the same time and what is he really advocating happen here hmm I wonder if it doesn't go back to something Megan implied earlier about the distinction between the human spirit and the human intellect. And, and if the gamin is an embodiment of the human spirit of human hope of human resilience of human daring it, whereas the education and the, and the philosophical side of the philosophical ideas that motivate motivated the revolution represent the rational intellect. And if the one needs to serve the other, constantly right there needs to be a partnership between those two things but maybe that's too on the nose what do you think megan no i kind of read it the same way that that he's advocating for enlightenment principles being brought to to further the liberty of these little little men and give them a voice to talk about what they know which is unspoiled which if we're thinking about it in terms of a a moral thing or something having to do with the human soul or the human experience, 
they have they have a touch of the place de greve in them he says that's mm-hmm. necessary for frenchness he he argues but i think for humanity what he means is a touch of real connection with suffering and the darker parts of human nature that's the part that he wants to empower through education to speak for itself and to be added into the voice of humanity and i don't know i saw those two things as going together rather than contradicting each other yeah to that point, he says that they live in the outskirts of Paris, in the limbo, right? Mm-hmm. That meeting place between where Paris begins and ends. Yeah. It reminds me of the nuns who who stay on the edge. They live on the edge and look out into the void. They mm-hmm. live in this in-between place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That picture of looking out through something dark, like through a dark veil on the part of the nuns, through the darkness of human nature on the part of the gamins, he says on page 589, the gloom can be used for the conquest of the ideal. Look through the medium of the people and you will discern the truth. So look through the people themselves as a a dark lens to see truth more clearly. I like that. I don't know quite what that means, but... (laughs) It might be worth talking about that we have begun a new book called Marius. <laughs> uh, he, he's done this a couple times. He yeah. did this with Cosette, where we started a book called Cosette, and he began talking about Waterloo. <laughs> yeah. Even though it seemed entirely unrelated, it actually had everything to do with Cosette. It's even more specific in this instance, though, because he he gets done with his digression about Paris, and then he says... This little Gavroche, whom we didn't discuss specifically, but we've been dis- discussing the gamin. Um, this little Gavroche lived next door to a guy named Monsieur Marius. Let's talk about who he is. It's that specific. Let's go discuss. The segues are a little more obvious. Yeah. Let's go discuss Marius. And then Marius literally doesn't come up for two books. So I think it's significant that we talk about another little boy instead in Marius's place to open up this chapter. So I don't know. Maybe he wants us to see the the up and coming Marius, who we haven't really addressed yet, as Gamma, Gamma, or or he's saying yes, yes, we're gonna focus on Marius, but maybe the truly important thing going on here is this other other little boy, Gavroche. In either sense, though, we're we're gonna be leaning pretty hard on a literary device called a foil, right? Where we've got yeah, two yeah. characters side by side whose differences and similarities are supposed to emphasize one another. We're in conversation with this little boy Gavroche and the boy we're gonna know, the grandson of the the creepy old man we're gonna spend some time with. <laughs> I wonder if there's also a foil or a parallel between Gavroche, the little boy starts the section and the old man who ends our reading for today that they also are a pairing just to to give a couple of factual details though for those of you who maybe have read really quickly and are a little lost in chapter 13 of i think it's the second book of marius we have a title little gavroche this is supposed to be eight or nine years after the events of the story that we left off with some hundred pages ago So eight or nine years into the future, we now meet a a new character who is, though he has a father and a mother and sisters, he is an orphan and unloved and one of the gamas of the street that we've just learned about. So a sad little circumstance. Yeah. Except for he is as contrasted. It says he would have accurately realized the idea of the gamma previously sketched if with the laughter of youth on his lips, his heart had not been absolutely dark. 
and empty. So apparently the, the other little boys who roam the street at least have mothers and fathers who watch over them to some degree, but little Gavroche does not. Hmm. I, that doesn't make any sense to me either because he already described the gamin as being an orphan. It's like he's reaching for something to make Gavroche a sad case. And then he goes, oh, shoot, I just described everything about his life as freaking awesome. I know. Uh, what do we do? <laughs> his heart was dark and empty. I know why, though. His, <laughs> his heart in particular, compared to the other homeless children of whom we have a picture now that the street is just crawling with them. He alone can see what parental affection would look like and is denied. It. Yes. So it's not just, well, all kids are abandoned. His sisters are treasured. He is despised or just ignored. And that makes his heart colder than it would have been before. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. The other children, it, it's a necessary evil. One can imagine that they're both their mothers and their fathers have to work to bring in income and they do it out of love for their children. It's just a, a necessary abandonment of some kind during the day. Whereas Gavroche, he, he can watch his parents feel that way about his sisters, but he doesn't have that. So he goes home once every couple of months and his mom goes, what are you doing here? Mm -hmm. Home to Gorbo house, which is a very pointed <laughs> fact about his life. So there's another foil then between Gavroche and Cosette. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, it might interest the readers to know, and I'm sure Hugo will find a way to make it clear, but we've leapt forward in time. Gavroche and Cosette and Marius are not all little kids at the same time together. Mm -hmm. Right. So Cosette is about eight or nine years older than the last time we saw her, whereas Gavroche is now whatever age she was at that time. Yeah. Ish. Gotcha. He was barely toddling in the earlier sections. <laughs> we got to be careful here because I don't know if our readers know who this character is yet. <laughs> ah, well, that'll <laughs> Figure be Figure it out, guys. There's this hilarious little moment. We're talking about Gavroche and how his parents hate him and all that kind of stuff. And then Hugo is just so funny to me. I really like him. I like hanging out with him. And I think his sense of humor is weird. He says, <laughs> why was his name Gavroche? Well, probably because his father's name was Jondrette. I just thought, well, that's <laughs> sure. That's obvious. Name the kid Gavroche because his dad's name is Booga Booga. <laughs> you know, like, I, his next sentence immediately explains this is further to disconnect from his family and cast him off. He's not named after his father. It's not the continuation of a family line. Even as a son, he's despised. But I just thought it was hilarious. Uh, my favorite, before we move on to the next section, my other favorite line, having just watched the new season of Emily in Paris, I really appreciated. <laughs> Let's see, it comes in the description uh, that we were just talking about at length. Page 586, Paris does more than lay down the law. It lays down the fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can we get that delivery again, Emily? <laughs> Paris does more than lay down the law. It lays down the fashion. <laughs> Good. But we need a little more pizzazz on that last line. I need you to give me some jazz hands about that. It lays down the fashion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, so we, we finished our section and we already made fun of him for saying, let's talk about Marius and turning to someone else for an entire couple of books. But we do get a description of young Marius's grandfather. And his time, and we sort of already mentioned that he is a he's a symbol of a previous era for for Hugo, 
what adjectives would you choose to describe the man of that era? Oh, he's vital. Interesting. Expand. He's not weak. Hugo goes to great lengths to make sure we understand that he is very, very old. He's 90 something <laughs> years old. Right. But he has all of his teeth, which is all 32 teeth. <laughs> we can laugh about it, but he is really fixated that this reminds me of Fantine, right? Mm-hmm. One's teeth <laughs> seem to be fairly significant to Hugo. Represents their status in life. <laughs> so he has 32 teeth. He jaunts up and down the stairs every morning. He doesn't take lovers, not because he's old, but because he considers himself poor. Um, and unattractive. <laughs> well, no, no. He's unattractive because he's poor. That's the joke. Right? Oh, I missed Hugo that. Hugo says he considers himself unattractive. And not because he's old, but because he's poor. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not really that poor. He gets 15,000 livres a year, which, you know, he lives in... in Compared to our our other characters, he comfort lives in and happiness. Comfort, yeah, <laughs> yes. He's a bigot, though, right? Mm-hmm. He he considers himself very highly, and he considers, especially the revolutionaries, very poorly. Mm-hmm. His politics are monarchical. I also thought, just as a further further painting of his character, that he was a little lecherous. The description of the way that he handles relationships with women is kind of gross, but the outworking of it is that when a young woman makes a scandal and drops a baby off at his doorstep, this octogenarian who couldn't possibly be the father of her child, he is flattered to be thought of as a womanizer and takes care of that kid on into the future. It was a strange combination of gross, lecherous, pride in something that's frankly not good. And then also a generosity of spirit, taking care of this this young man off into his adulthood. That was kind of a strange combination. He approaches all of life like that. We're told, right, that he's not a miser like some other of the rich people he's compared to, but he actually does give generously and he's hearty, right? And that comes with flaws in his character. He is wholeheartedly very blind to some of his flaws, right? And that leads to a lot of vice in his life because he's very earthy, but then also he, I don't know, it's just, he's vibrant. It's both good and bad, I think. Well, he's certainly fun to read about. I loved the idea that when he takes a servant into his house, he only has two names for the servant. If it's a man, he calls him Basque. (laughs) And if it's a woman, he calls her Nicolette. And they have no choice. He'll even pay them a little bit more so that they will lose their name. (laughs) So he doesn't have to remember them, I guess. Which makes him a representative of the social system that has taken away everyone's names. Right. Has flattened them all into servant A and servant B. His name, his first name is Luc Esprit. And Megan, correct me if I'm wrong, but the spirit of light. Mm-hmm. Or light spirit. Which given our, our previous passage about light and Gavroche and the children of Paris is ironic. Maybe. I was just over here thinking there is a distinction between him as the spirit of the previous age and the aristocrats who are beheaded at the guillotine. And he flirts with the line, perhaps, but he didn't get executed in the revolution. Although he does discredit himself with great wit in avoiding that. Right. But what he credits, what Mm -hmm. he credits himself with is, I'm not sure we're supposed to take it uber seriously, considering the caricature of the rest of his character. I guess the only point I'm trying to make is he seems to approve. Hugo seems to approve. 
of parts of this man's personality, while also approving of the revolution and what it did away with and the de- the de-stratification of society that it attempted to accomplish. How can he do both of those things unless there's something about this guy that sets him apart from the aristocrats? He, uh, we're told that he was a man of the 18th century, frivolous and great. And great. Yeah. What is the greatness? Is it is it is it a romantic greatness or an enlightenment greatness? I wonder if it's, you know, we read everything through Tolstoy. That's the problem with spending two years on a podcast talking about I read about my that. own life through Tolstoy at this point. <laughs> but uh, I wonder if he isn't a little bit of the spirit of old Paris. And that has some serious flaws to it. Obviously, it led to a lot of bloodshed, that old spirit of Paris. Yeah. But, you know, there it's, it's part of their heritage. It's part of what made Paris the thriving cosmopolitan metropolis he describes before. Paris has a long, long history. It's not just the revolution that made it great, but everything leading up to it had to lead, build its own built its character um and so i'm thinking a little bit of like is it maria the old old russia yeah she embodies if we're told story old russia embodies the essential kernel of wisdom and greatness of the country right. that's not as true here because the flowering of that greatness that french greatness led to a lot of tragedy but there is something that i think that he honors about that maybe that's the word i'm looking for he honors that old spirit. Mm-hmm. I don't think he shies away from pointing out the blindnesses in it. And mm-hmm. in so doing, he shows himself as a little bit more of a Republican, if you will. But he does, it is an honoring tone. He doesn't lambaste old Paris in this characterization. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It 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 felt affectionate mm-hmm. to me, which was just surprising given his political perspective. On the other hand, I do think that he is because he lives with his unmarried daughter and we, we get an explicit comparison to Bienvenu living with his sister. Mm-hmm. He is kind of an inverted picture of what we read at the beginning of the book, the, the old man who lives in community and at, with his sister at home. He is not, he's the complete, he's like the enlightenment opposite of everything that Bienvenu that is for. a great point. <laughs> I, love that. I also didn't think about this until you said it just now, but the way that the sister is characterized is also a, a weird opposite. infernal reflection. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The pre- Immodestly prudery. modest. Prudery. Yeah. yeah. Instead line. of modesty, which <laughs> is guys, really interesting. Some of the most funny lines from our section come from this articulation of that immodestly <laughs> modest prude. He says, she piled on hooks and pins where nobody thought of looking. (laughs) The characteristic of prudery is to increase the sentinels as the fortress becomes less threatened. (laughs) Brutal. So funny. Savage, Hugo. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But yeah, I wonder what the point of that is. I'm sure that will develop over time. But he he's a caretaker. We know. And the kind of caretaker he is is obviously nothing like, I think probably what he has to offer, his charge is nothing like what Bienvenu offers Jean Valjean. And maybe that's why it's so pointed that we're told that he had nothing to do with God. Hmm. That is interesting. And that's actually, that's kind of heartening to me that 
after all of this talk about Paris and about progress and about finding the light and, and enlightenment ideals and and maybe a little idealizing of the ration of rationality, the reason he does like if this character embodies all of those philosophies without God, he still falls flat. You know, he doesn't have everything he needs. Man progressing on his own strength leads to leads to some flaws in his character. It's almost as though I just think it's well constructed that we get the bishop first, that we get a meditation on the state of the human soul before we get an extended meditation on the state of the human polis. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, maybe this is the reason that this is, um, this is a classic work is that he sees those two things as intimately connected, but first thing is first, God is more than just. And if he isn't more than just, then what are we even doing in all of our organizing and our categorizing and our stratifying of our societies? So I get the sense he's always going to return to that point that you're making, Emily. He's going to return to God's identity and how that affects the identity of man, which I appreciate about Hugo. That's what I appreciate about him. (laughs) Me too. Well, thank you both for your insights and thank you listeners for joining us on this trek through Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Please do come and join us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you and uh, give us some questions. Give us some, some, some comments and, and things to take up in our next episode. Until we meet again, friends, bon appétit. Bon appétit. Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.